Hello everybody and welcome to The Secrets of Storytelling. I'm Sharon Richards, your host. And each week what we're going to do is this. We're going to interview a storyteller, a different type of storyteller every week. And we're going to find out from them some of their secrets, some of their hints and tips. We're going to find out how they got into storytelling, what techniques they use for finding their stories, for writing their stories, for memorising them and then for performing them. I'm going to ask them some tough questions like what's the worst moment on stage but also what's your best moment on stage? What it is that you get out of this amazing art form of telling a story to a group of people? Lay me down gently Tell to me Stories that soothe me And set my dreams free Our guest today is the Welsh wizard Pennant Roberts. He's an 84-year-old Welsh performance poet who's been part of the Success Stories Storytelling Club since it started 10 years ago. He has told his stories and his poems on street corners, in bars, in clubs, in church halls, women's institutes, you name it, he's been there and, and has got the t-shirt to prove it. He writes all his own material. He's a poet, he's a raconteur, prize-winning in both areas, and we are so pleased to have him. But like many storytellers, he didn't start off as a storyteller. He started off as a pharmacist. He's got all kinds of stories to tell and poems to recount. He was telling us earlier today that you once sat behind Mother Teresa on a plane. So here's Penn's story from the horse's mouth himself, which has taken his own experience of learning word by word at school and turned it into a great little tale for you. Ladies and gentlemen, which is the usual introduction, you see before you a very, very happy dinosaur. I represent a generation that should have died out in 1965, but we didn't. We have survived relics of an extinct form of education known as learning by rote. By the age of seven, we could chant the alphabet, recite our multiplication tables, and we possessed amazing gems of information such as there are 112 pounds in a hundredweight, miss. There are 66 feet in a chain, miss. And eight gallons in a bushel, miss. We repeated everything over and over until the details transferred themselves from the brain to the tip of the tongue. The aim was to achieve a mindless mastery of every subject. At school, there was no such thing as a bright pupil. Everyone was either thick or very thick. We never expected to understand what we were taught. Asking questions was forbidden. Or we could get away with asking questions like who and when. That was history. Or where, that was geography. But the question why was strictly forbidden. Once I had the nerve to ask the mathematics teacher, why do we need algebra, sir? He went berserk. Did you ask me why, Roberts, you raised? Fancy yourself as some kind of a philosopher, do you? A bit of a Socrates? Listen, lad, we don't any troublemakers around here. The mass teacher was a semi-retired boxer who kept in training by delivering left uppercuts to any pupil unfortunate enough to give him a wrong answer. Once he asked me how to, how to calculate the circumference of a circle. Alas, the tip of my tongue went into uh, immediate overdrive. The square on the hypotenuse in a right-angled triangle. Too late. 
The next minute I was on the receiving end of a right cross to the chin and a straight left to the solar plexus. Happy days. <laughs> Never again did I confuse uh, Pythagoras' theorem with anything else. Learning by rote meant that facts and figures were brutally stuffed into our heads. That's why dinosaurs like me can repeat obscure mathematical and scientific formulas, reel off meaningless historical dates and recite complicated poems by Wordsworth and John Masefield. This process of shoving knowledge into our heads was called cramming for the exams. One examination that struck terror into our hearts was called the 11 plus. Apparently it can still bring horrendous nightmares to millions and millions of parents. All teachers were sadists, and to assist them in their grim practices, they carried with them an assortment of weapons, a selection of weapons. A favourite with our history teacher was the blackboard duster. He could part a boy's hair from 30 feet. I was one of his regular targets. That's why I have a receding hairline. <laughs> Roberts, he screamed at me one afternoon. Who signed the Magna Carta? I panicked. It wasn't me, sir. <laughs> Six flying dusters landed decisively about my head. That day I learnt forever it was King John who scribbled his name on that great Declaration of Liberty in the year 1215. Our science teacher wielded a flexible cane which she could crack and flick like a horsewhip. She always wore fishnet stockings. And in the chemistry laboratory she wore black leather overalls. That's why we nicknamed her Madame X. She was a, a BSc in graduate dominatrix from Birmingham University. She was also an expert at throwing chalk, which we used to call uh, calcium carbonate or calcium salt. She would fire a salvo at the head of any pupil who displeased her. Roberts, she, she spat at me one morning. What's the formula for nitric acid? Uh, awakening from her reverie, I went into overdrive. <laughs> now in those days, there was no such thing as attention deficit disorder. We all suffer from daydreaming, and daydreaming was a punishable offence. Uh, hey, hey, H, I stuttered. Hey, H2SO4, I stuttered. It began to rain, hard white pellets of calcium sulphate, calcium carbonate. You stupid boy, hissed Madame X. That's sulfuric acid. Crack, crack, flick, flick, went the horsewhip. Robert, she said, go and stand inside the fume cupboard. Pull down the shutters. Stay there for an hour and turn on the tap, releasing the hydrogen sulfide gas. <laughs> uh, after leaving school, I did two years national service in the army, where again I learned to do things by rote, only they called it drill. One, two, three, one, two, three, two. So even if my brain was petrified with fear on the battlefield, my hands still not to, knew what to do. I could fix a bayonet to my rifle and kill the enemy before he killed me. I can see some of you now begin to realise the benefits are the unexpected benefits of learning to do things by rote. Recently a strange thing happened to me. I was I, I read a poem I'd made, I was made to memorise at school and thanks to learning it by rote, I recalled it completely. But then, the poem I'd once chanted mechanically like a, like a, like a parrot, miraculously moved from the tip of my tongue down into my heart. I must go down to the sea again, to the lonely sea and the sky, 
And all I ask is a tall ship and a star to steer her by. And the wheels kick and the wind's song and the white sails shaking. And a grey mist on the sea's face and a grey dawn breaking. I must go down to the sea again, for the call of the running tide is a wild call and a clear call that may not be denied. And all I ask is a windy day, with white clouds flying, and the flung spray and the blown spume and the seagulls crying. I must go down to the sea again, to the vagrant gypsy life, to the gull's way and the whale's way, where the wind's like a wetted knife. And all I ask is a merry yarn from a laughing fellow rover, and a quiet sleep and a sweet dream when the long trick's over. Ladies and gentlemen, happiness is a dinosaur called Roberts. Oh, fabulous. I absolutely love that story. I've heard it so many times, it gets better every time. It's lovely to see you today. I have to say you are one of my all-time favourite storytellers and poets, so it's lovely to talk to you. you won't be offended if I say that you have been doing storytelling and performance poetry for quite a few years now, because you are a bit over 21. Can yeah. you tell us how you got started? I suppose I started originally when a friend at the Welsh Society I belonged to said, would I do something for St David's Day? Okay. And I wrote a monologue at the St David's Day dinner, and that's how I started. And from there I went on to... Uh, go to courses, an Avon course on performance when the tutors were Roger McGough and a marvellous lady called Jean Binterbreeze. And when she heard me doing my Welsh monologue, she was from Jamaica and she said, you got to go for that boy. Oh, wow. (laughs) So she said that and you you went for it, obviously. You did go for it. Yeah, it was encouraging. Good courses on Avon in those days. We did all sorts. Interestingly enough... uh, the, the Jamaican lady, Jean Binterbreeze, was by far the much bigger personality than Roger McGough. Oh, really? She led the course. Wow. He was a bit sort of diffident and uh, low-key, really. We might expect that from a poet, really, might you? Apparently, yes. <laughs> might expect diffidence from a poet. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, but it's unusual that you, you got into that so wholeheartedly because your background is as a pharmacist, isn't it? You, you're not an actor or a performer. No, no, no. But I come from a tradition, I suppose. My father used to recite. Did he? Yeah, I've got a very battered old silver cup at home that he won oh. because it was part of the, the old Estedford uh, circuit, if you like. Yeah. And there's lots of different Estedvards. He used to win prizes for reciting. Wow. Yeah. So, so you, you um, had that at home? You, you heard yeah. him practice and everything? And it influenced me in as much as... I have always really tried to memorise my material. Yes. You would not go up on the stage in an Estedvard with a piece of paper in your hand. No, no. You recite them, you memorise them. And uh, I've followed in that, I suppose. Wow. And it's interesting, in, at the Estedvards, and we've been to one together, it was fantastic. Mm. Um, people doing like recitation, that they're reciting other people's work normally, aren't they? Learning it by rote. But you, you're very creative, you write a lot of your own stuff, don't you? Yes. Yeah, I've always written poetry, I suppose. Uh, it was a, you know, diversi- diversification, if you like, from my job as a pharmacist, yes. I, uh, it was my salvation, in a way. Yeah. Writing, Kept you combining, with, you know, because the routine was pretty mundane and, you know, bookkeeping and that kind of thing. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's interesting you're talking about learning things by rote. Lots of storytellers don't do that, but I know that you do. So tell us, how, how do you prepare when you're about to perform one of your pieces 
well, if I've got, if I've written something, or I'm trying to memorise somebody else's work, really, I just read through it. There's no substitute for repetition. Mm -hmm. And my own experience is that if you keep at it and keep at it and keep at it, repetition, 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 it starts to sink in. It's yeah. no miracle. I'm not gifted particularly in memorising things. Uh, and gradually it, it, it travels, the material travels from your brain down to the tip of your tongue. Yeah. And then you're in a different area. Yeah. And I always say it goes on from there to travel from the tip of your tongue when you really know your material down into your heart and yes. you give it real welly. Yes. And that yeah. takes quite a while for me. Well, it takes a lot of work and, and your performances certainly show you put the work in. They're brilliant. Mm. So what, what um, you said that it kind of kept you sane when you had a, a probably quite a pressurised job as a, as a pharmacy manager. Yes, yes. Yeah, the, I think the problem is the same and always has been. One of the things that keeps you going is a fear of debt. Mm. This isn't a, a greed for profit, it's fear, fear of, of debt. debt yeah. And I, I suppose I was in business for uh, 25 years yeah. and I never realised I was doing all right. I always thought I was just about keeping out of debt all yes. the time. Yeah. But when I sold the business, I did all right. Yeah, the business brilliant. sold well. Brilliant. And I uh, had, had a good living, really, without fully realising. <laughs> That's business for you. Yeah. You're never really a f uh, away from fear. Well, I think if you start to relax running your own business, it's probably going to go downhill from there, isn't <laughs> probably, it? Probably, <laughs> yeah. It's anxiety that keeps you going. Keeps you going. Obviously, it stood you in really good stead. Yeah. So have, did you start, because you performed all over, I think one of the quotes you put on the website for the Storytelling Club is something about you've performed in church halls and street corners and pubs and bars. Oh, messes and all sorts. Yeah, of when them, did yeah. you start doing that kind of stuff, just going well, out into the community? Well, there was a, a gathering of people in Middlewich in Cheshire, with a chap called David Roberts and he used to have it in a pub there can't remember the name of the pub but he had a regular uh, assembly if you like of performances mm -hmm. performance poetry mostly in those days it was verse and uh, one lady who turned up there was a bit of a monster in a way <laughs> <laughs> and she would persuade every one of us because she was a very strong personality to stand up in a pub and recite unannounced, unwelcomed, just <laughs> you're doing, you're on now, come on. And we, there we were, and we'd stand up, and, and the people would be, you know, over a pint of beer, they were talking, and they'd get filthy looks. But no, we're on, we're, you're having poetry, whether you like it or not, performance poetry, and that was a baptism of fire. Yeah. And she even got us to do it in the street in Sheffield at a festival. You know, on the street corner. And that's so, it toughens you up. I'm sure. Because kids come and stare up your nose and, <laughs> and start making, and you, the thing is, it teaches you to keep going. Yes. You don't stop. Yeah. Never stop. <laughs> you know, when, when people fa start stumbling on their verses, I, I say, carry on, yes. keep going, don't yeah. stop. Because you, then you'll hate yourself afterwards. If you've kept going, at least you can live with yourself. Yes. Yeah, it's important, isn't it? And, mo and most crowds are forgiving. I, I don't know if you've, if it's a crowd where you've disrupted their Friday night football talk. That might not be quite so forgiving. But in most storytelling clubs or poetry venues, yeah. people are quite, if you forget, everyone forgets from time to time, don't they? Oh, some terrible venues, aren't they? 
places where people walk through the room yeah. in the middle of your performance. I don't know if you, we used to go to a club, a storytelling club in Cholton. I don't know if you were there that night. And it was upstairs in a little room. Yeah. And uh, halfway through someone telling a story, one of the cooks walked into the room, straight in front of the storyteller, opened a big freezer, got out a giant, gigantic bag of chips, walked straight past and left the room again. Yeah. And it was in the middle of a horror story. It killed it stone dead. Yeah, but in a way, it's part of your education is, yeah. because if you can survive that, yeah, absolutely. You know, things otherwise you never know when uh, some emergency, some in the audience might heckle you. Yes, you have more okay. chance of having a reply to their heckle if you've been toughened up been, yeah. elsewhere yeah, through people just ignoring you or you know walking past you yeah well, I remember when I, I died completely I was telling very early on I was telling one of my longest and I thought my strongest story and it normally got a really good response it was a lunchtime thing at the contact theatre people sort of came in and they were sitting there for this free event and at the end of it no one clapped no one they, they went, I thought that's what happened and what happened was, for the first time ever, I was using a microphone and I was holding it right up against my mouth. So what the audience could hear was, <laughs> but with it being an English, very, you know, very polite audience, no one bothered to tell me. No. So I stood up there like an idiot for 20 odd minutes, mm. talking away, doing all the movements. Yeah. But it was the best thing that happened to me because I realised actually no one died. I, I really no. messed it up. But it, in the great scheme of things we all die at one point on the Absolutely. stage and, it, and it's fine you just get up and do it again and I, did it I mean it's a rule in life isn't it you, to, you've got to fail before you can succeed absolutely it's not how many times you fall down and failing many... it teaches you more than willingly or it praise does. you know sort of criticism is better than, fa- yeah. than praise it's about getting back up again and having another go isn't yes. it I think it's nice when things go wrong and the, the performer shows that actually they're confident enough to deal with that that it doesn't 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 panic them. It's okay. I messed it up. I forgot my lines. I'll get my bit of paper and then I'll carry on. That relaxes the audience, I think. But what what do you think makes a good storyteller pair? They're all different, aren't yeah. they? I was quite amazed when I first joined the the group or whatever, because I came from a different tradition mm. and I memorised my material, yes. yeah. and I realised these people hadn't memorised them in the same way that I no. did you know, verbatim. Because we came from a public speaking no, club. Didn't yes, we? and public speaking, etc. Public speaking, of course, you don't memorise your material. You get headings, sound bites. Yeah. And, uh, most storytellers I've met come from a tradition, of an ancient tradition, mm. which means that they uh, sort of have an outline yes. in their head. And some of the stories I don't find particularly appealing because mm. they are seem to be aimed more at a, 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 ch- a child, a, children, a children's audience. Well, a lot of storytellers are children's storytellers, aren't they? And yes. that, that's what's different about an adult club like ours, is that we don't have um, children's stories in there. But we do have lots of, we have what two, maybe three traditional storytellers, where they tell very ancient stories. Yes. Like, you know, something like Cinderella, which has been going on for hundreds, if not thousands of years, that story mm. in different... So it's very, it's very ancient. I suppose it depends where you target it. A lot of storytellers do target children, obviously, and work in schools. But um, the adult clubs, there is a resurgence, isn't there, in adult clubs and adult storytelling. People are becoming much more Yes, and it's it. sort of uh, blurred a bit with yeah. the stand-up comedy and yeah. things like that. Yeah. Uh, and when I'm writing something with a view to using it as a story, t- you know, for storytelling, mm. I find I write it in a different way 
the night I was writing it like for publication in a book on yes, the page yeah. uh, shorter sentences maybe yeah. and sound bites and uh, so I change my material yeah. if I think I'm going to that, use it that is a really important point and one of the, one of the hints and tips for anyone out there who wants to start doing storytelling is that if you find um, as Penn said you find something that's written it's a written story don't ever try and tell it as it's written down because it sounds really bizarre one of the uh, one of my favourite stories has got the sentence in it the young man was completely taken aback by the old man's pertinent enquiry now that's fine if you're reading it but if someone actually says that out loud it sounds bizarre because you'd never come home from Tesco's would you and say oh I was quite taken aback by that old man's pertinent enquiry the is wrong you'd say oh you could never believe what that old man no, just said to me no. so you've got to almost translate it into a way that sounds much more natural it changes the way you write. It does. Uh, That's a mistake beginners make. They even try on to... the page, your, your page is different yeah. because if you're influenced by that fact. It's uh, the spoken word became was around long before the written yes. word was there. Yeah, and it's uh, things like onomatopoeia and metaphors and things like that and similes, etc. Uh, these are part of storytelling. Mm. On the page, you use these things, but uh, it's how it sounds. Yes. The sound yeah. is so important when you're speaking. Yeah. And if something's cumbersome or awkward, the audience yeah. turn off. Yeah, and that links into what you're saying about repetition. You've got to repeat it and repeat it and say, does that sound right? And sometimes it can be fine written down. But when you actually try and say it, it just sounds jerky or just not quite yes. right. And that's why you repeat yeah. it over and over to get it... A definitive version, I find, takes a long time to arrive at. Mm. And until you've got it, and in my case, if I'm trying to memorise it, yeah. what's the point of running of, re, of trying to memorise something that's not the definitive yes. version? Yeah. Wait until you're absolutely sure you've got on paper the definitive, the final version. Yes. Then start memorising it then, not before. Yeah. Mm. What have you? You said that, that storytelling and, and performances sort of kept you sane when you had a job that was it was stressful and it was uh, it was a bit boring at times. Well, what, what have you got from storytelling? Um, sort of in post retirement. I mean, you are you're in you're in a couple of clubs. You're in, you've been a, a member of our club, the Success Stories Club, for eight nine years ever since we got going. And and you never miss. You all, and you always no. do great stuff. Why do you keep on coming back? What is it about a storytelling club that makes you want to come back? Well, it suits my temperament, and it's, uh, in many ways, no reflection on any person. or a, It's been the happiest time of my life oh. because I'm free of any responsibilities, yeah. and it's something I enjoy. It's And the company, the friendship. Mm. I met a type of person that I didn't know, mm. and they're not boring. <laughs> Can <laughs> I tell you a good story? <laughs> yes, they're not boring. The whole circle, particularly in the club with Sharon here, uh, they're so friendly, yeah. and and uh, I get something similar at a folk club when I go there. Mm. It's not competitive, no. not fiercely competitive, yeah. which is so nice. We're not. We're all sort of self. You know, we congratulate each yes. other. Yeah, and and it, how do you find it when? Um, because you obviously win the audience vote quite a lot, but um, when you don't win the audience vote, how do you feel? When the vote from when, the audience? Yeah, when you don't win the audience vote. Well, it's debatable whether the audience is 
you know, a better judge than an outside judge, mm-hmm. if you like, which we get in speakers clubs. I think being a judge is tricky. Yeah. And of course, when you get a, a, a circle and the audience judges, mm-hmm. then they're going to be partisan to a certain extent. So again, who cares? Exactly. If you haven't exactly. won. Yeah. And what, what, that's what I find in the club particularly is that there's no, it doesn't, it's great if you win, but people don't care if they don't win. You know, it's like no. um, they're pleased whoever wins. Competition's um, very keen when you're going out to work and that sort of thing. Yeah. And if you're, you know, you're dependent on it for your income and that sort of thing. Yeah. But of course, myself, retired, I just enjoy it. Yes. And yeah. uh, I don't sulk if I don't win. Yes. Yeah. But if you do win, of course, you get a place in the Storyteller of the Year contest. Oh, of course, yeah, that's of a big one. <laughs> I do like to win. Yeah. You know, you'd be a liar yeah. if it didn't. Say yeah. I did. Well, you've done that enough in your time, but you don't just win for storytelling. You win for poetry, written poetry, and everything. You won a BBC Radio Leeds contest yes, last year. Yes, yes, yeah? that's right. Your yeah. most recent one. I'm, I'm still trying competitions, you know. Uh, I hope to win, of course. Yes. But what's the point of entering otherwise? Yeah. This life is very, very good to me. I've had a good, you know, I've had hard times, but uh, hard, hard, did I say hard? Hard, hard. times. Uh, but uh, my presence, I'm enjoying very life present. very much. I'm delighted to yeah. hear it. So before we hear your actual poem and story pen, we're in a writing group together, aren't we, with, with uh, Marilyn, who's also done a different mm. podcast, and with Sue, who's going to do one in a few minutes. We're in a little writing group. Some of the people there write prose, some write poems. What um what kind of poetry do you like and what kind of poetry don't you like? I suppose well, I, I pretty wide uh, range really. I write comic verse mm-hmm. and I write serious poems. I've just com- put together a collection of poems that have come out of my experience. I was born during the before the war really, mm-hmm. so I lived through the Second World War. Mm-hmm. I did national service in the army. Right. My father was in the trenches in the First World War. And I hadn't realised what an influence that was on me. The the twenty first century has been totally different. My life really is twenty twentieth century. Twentieth century, yeah. Because of the wars and mm. that sort of thing. Yeah. And my poetry has reflected that. Right. But I also write comic verse and uh, I'm always there's always phrases coming through my head and mm. playing with words. In fact, before I go to sleep at night I'm often playing with little words in my head that rhyme and it often it's brilliant in putting you to sleep (laughs) (laughs) you bore yourself but your own poetry puts you to sleep (laughs) and you fall asleep and you think that's good when you've got an idea at night do you remember it the next day because I don't if I've got an idea for my books and if I don't write it down it's gone by the next day it's always a danger isn't it always a danger if you don't get it down say you should always carry a notebook with you exactly but you can get obsessive about it in the middle of Tesco (laughs) they think you're doing some kind of spying for Sainsbury's (laughs) get something down yeah yeah so um, what's been your the highlight of your career as a performer do you think What are you most proud of? Uh, Well, I can't think of any example. I rather liked going to Swanwick last year because uh, there was a busker's evening and there was a stand-up evening and so forth. And uh, this old crock that I am got up on the stage and I, I sort of, uh, the audience were with me. Yeah, you were fab. Let me just explain that Swanwick is a one week long writer's course that's mm, held every in year. Yes. And in the evenings, even though the, the, the average age is well past retirement, I was in bed 
way way before most of the participants in that yes. in that course. Well, but you did you did the buskers night, you did the performance poetry yes. night, you did the Well, I've been to Swanick many times and there's a lot of workshops going on and if you've been to as many workshops as I have, you tend to hear the same things over and yeah, over. Yeah, yeah. You know, how to get published. I don't particularly care about that. Mm-hmm. And so what I do at Swanick now is I, I dodge the workshops. <laughs> I have a nap in the afternoon and I'm fresh after dinner in the evening. And I can stay up till midnight yes. and beyond. Brilliant, <laughs> mm. brilliant. So what, what advice would you give to someone who's just perhaps listening to what you're saying, thinking oh, I quite, would quite like to have a go at telling a story or performing a book. What advice would you give to someone who wants to start maybe going to a storytelling club or... Well, I story. think if you're telling stories as opposed to poetry, you draw on your own experience, particularly perhaps your younger younger days, childhood even. Mm. It's a rich source of material. Uh, we were thinking uh, the other day about these courses and place and time. Yeah. Find a place, find a time, mm. and stay with that for a while. Yes. Maybe, maybe an exotic place, maybe a holiday. And it might be a time which uh, you've almost forgotten you've actually lived through. Mm. Mm. Put them together. And s- some amazing stories come yeah. out of that. Because we've all got stories we've inside. We've all got amazing stories. We've all got something. Yeah, that is, if you want to tell you know, personal stories, mm. because you can find the material. The, the daily newspapers. Mm. I was in a writing class yesterday morning, and we were just looking at the headlines in I the wrote. papers. And the surreal things <laughs> in the press. So the Italian elections. There's a, this guy who's a crook, really. He all sorts of things. Gosh, it's like you were telling us a story just before of being on the same plane as Mother Teresa and helping her off with her, with her baggage yes. and not realising. I never really capitalised on that story <laughs> properly because I didn't realise immediately who it was. <laughs> and there she was sitting in front of me on the plane. <laughs> It's, yeah, I think we've all got stories to tell. If only we we realised yeah, it. But the, the real st- the, the observations I made are the ones about Mother Teresa yes, and what she yeah. did when somebody tried to steal her trolley at the airport and she <laughs> threw a cardigan over it. That's my trolley. <laughs> yeah, Back off, my Mother Teresa. Trolley. And all the stuff that came off the carousel, the, the cardboard boxes. She'd been uh-huh. to London, Cowan Gate, and big firms had given the thing, but a very poor return for a trip to London yeah. to bring back things for the, for the poor people yeah. in the in Rome in the in the in the orphanage there or wherever they were ending up at but but even though not many people get the chance to sit in mother tries on a plane everyone has got little anecdotes and stories that they could start to, yes. to work up and and be I think the problem is we think that our ordinary lives are boring but in actual fact yes. they're not if ordinary life was boring no one would watch Coronation Street for year after year no. after year we want to always know what happened next what happened next I would say this that if you've got a story and it's got some sort of shape and mm. looks like the, don't hesitate to embroider it yeah, yeah, yeah the truth is you know some people are sort of saying I couldn't say that because it didn't happen but it could have happened and if it fits in then and it's going to make the story more interesting mm-hmm. I'm afraid I just uh, add it yes if you're, if you're, and it, sometimes afterwards you can't remember whether it happened or not <laughs> <laughs> there, is a, there is a saying in storytelling circles never let the truth get in the way of a good story as, no. as long as you're not passing it off as absolute truth 
No. That's fine. Yeah. Sometimes just... a story hasn't got enough substance to yeah. really make it. So if you can add something, it has to be tangible. It has to be convincing. Yeah. So you use your own experience as yes. the basis of a bigger story and if it to go embellish. Then you reject it. What sometimes I think in writing, it's what you throw away that's more important than what you keep. Mm. You know, get rid of it if it isn't doing any good. Yes, get absolutely. Yeah, all the extra detail you don't need and mm. extra characters you don't need, yeah. just cut it down. You can always build it back up, can't you? Mm. Yeah. So in terms of standing up and performing, you've, you've talked about um, memorising and finding the material to start with and then memorising it. What... Tips would you give people about once they're up there on the stage and there's 40 people staring at them? Any advice you can give about that, about dealing well, with nerves or anything like that? Personally, I, f I go through every time hmm. doubt oh, okay. before I go up, certainly on the day, and I think, why am I doing this? <laughs> <laughs> and what happens if it goes wrong? And I've gone up because of promise, of committing myself yes, to it. Yes. And I've gone up, and almost without exception, I'm glad afterwards. Yes. And even if I haven't done it well, I'm glad it, I, I did yes. make the effort. Yeah, because you've learnt something for the next time. Yes. And you, or you get better, I think, at dealing with your nerves because yeah. you think, well, I felt like this last time. Yes. And I got through it. Yeah. Sometimes even if it goes hopelessly wrong, it's not the end of the world no. either, is it? No, absolutely not. It's not the absolutely end of the world. So don't take it too seriously. Yeah. Okay, so the obvious question now is, tell me the worst time it went wrong for you, Penn, when you're actually performing. Oh, that's a bit of a question out of the blue. Uh, I've uh, forgotten my lines, yeah. and I've... Uh, had to get a prompt from somebody in the yeah. audience who has had the no notes there. I don't do that anymore. Yeah. And I don't uh, even carry notes with me now. In a way, I think it's as well to carry notes with you. I do, because I'm never 100%. No. It's there if I need it. Like if I dry. Yeah. Drying can be difficult. What happens if I dry is that I wait. Mm. And sometimes... It comes back to yeah. you. And the audience doesn't always notice. No. Even though you've had a pause, make it look like a pause. <laughs> Not like, like so you've completely lost, you lost the plot. Just make it look like a pause. Yes. Uh, worst moments. I suppose the worst moments have been when uh, I've been out in very strange venues, mm. like the streets, on street corners, and yeah. in pubs where... The, the audience is practically hostile. Yes, yeah. And they don't want you there. And s the, this lady I knew, Susan Peters Rock, had enough cheek for us all. <laughs> she, she carried uh, us through. It was obviously a great foundation for you because it's worked. But yeah. my uh, worst experience of drawing was not the one at the contact theatre, although that was bad when people couldn't actually hear me. It was when I was doing a story that, that the most important word is the final word of the story and there was an audience of about 50 people and I forgot the last <laughs> word of the story yes. yeah. so that was a bit of a flop so what I do now is I write that one word on my hand do you? and I make sure that at some point I have to look at my hand <laughs> so I can remind myself of the yeah. last word <laughs> but as you say no one died it's not the end of the world and people people enjoy the stories anyway sometimes if it goes wrong you can actually if you if you keep going yeah. it sometimes becomes funny again yes 
because yeah. they know that you're having trouble. And if you don't go to pieces and you bluff your way through it, it almost turns to an extra feature. Yes. Something yeah. unexpected. Yeah, and if you're not phased by it or frightened by it, the audience isn't frightened by it. They know you're secure enough in yourself to keep going and to look at your notes, hang on a minute, just let me look at my notes and start going again. They mm. can then relax and know yeah. what, you know what you're doing. You, I used to do residential time. homes, residential homes in North Wales, and you got some barracking, you know, and people <laughs> say, you know, in the middle of your, your performance, they'd go, are we having bingo? <laughs> <laughs> in the middle of your performance. I was on. I went to a place where the high percentage of the patients, or residents rather, were suffering from dementia. Yeah. And what they, what they were saying across the room was much funnier than what than we were material. doing. Than your material. I want to go to the toilet. Oh. You know, in the middle of your performance. But I remember when you did that for a long time. You went every week for for many years to 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 run a conversation group, didn't you, with people who suffered oh, from dementia? Locally, that was yeah. yes. Um, and it was amazing the responses you did you used to get from people. People would would would. Yes, I used to, well. I, I I was not an expert on dementia, but they, 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 generally speaking, they weren't people who were suffering from Alzheimer's and dementia. What they were suffering from, I think, was institutionalization. Really. Well, that's my opinion. Right. They were because their daily routine was so 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 narrow. Yes. Yeah. And so, what I was trying to do there was to find short little subjects I used mm. to prepare for hours. Uh, things I knew they would uh, re- they would be able to identify yes. with. Like the old film stars, the old films, yes. or even popular music from their era, yeah. Cole Porter lyrics. Right. And they would, I'd get them to sing, and one or two of them would say, I've never done any poetry in my life. So I, one time I just, it was there, this lady was there and I said, I just started a poem. We all knew, like W.H. Uh, Davis, you know, what is this life if full of care? We yeah. have no time to stand, stand and, and stare. And she was doing it. I said, you do know poetry. Yes. Wow. And she wow. she was coming along with me, you know. Oh. Poetry is very useful, I've found. So not not he, not the, the more... Tennyson, I found, was a bit dense. Mm. But uh, comic verse, Ogden Nash. Yeah. And... Uh, Lots of poetry. Betjeman was great. Mm. John Betjeman's mm. bits of you know he's so human. Yes, yeah. And mm. people, it brings back memories from people for people, doesn't it, of school days? Yes, and they wouldn't have thought they were listening to poetry. No. You know the 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 uh, Diary of a Church Mouse yes. by John Betjeman. You know it's brilliant. Yeah. And uh, T. S. Eliot. Uh, yes. You know McCavity the Mystery oh, Cats. Yes. You know yeah. that sort of thing. They don't even know they're listening to poetry, yeah. but it's so good. And poetry is—it belongs to the storytelling tradition it does because that oral tradition. Yeah. It's not on the page, really. No. I don't think poetry started on the page. No, it's no. musicality. Yeah, when it's done well, it's, it's mm. fantastic. It's closer to music than literature in, yeah. in many ways. But you're also going to do for me, especially because I've asked um, one of my favourite poems that you've written. Shrinking Giants, or positively The Last Welsh Dragon. Will you do that one for us? I'll try. Thank you. Uh, I thought you might like to hear about a special place that we have in Wales for retired mythological creatures and beings. It's where we send all the elderly mermaids and the clapped-out witches and the giants who are past their best. Among the residents is the queen of the Tullwith Teg, 
That's the little people, the gentle people. She's the fairy queen. You might have seen this place, actually. It's situated at the end of the promenade at Rill. Sometimes it's there and sometimes it isn't. Anyway, it's called, I've called the poem, Shrinking Giants, or Positively the Last Welsh Dragon. The home for mythological beasts on the promenade at Rill is a resting place for those legends of the past, where a geriatric mermaid can pause and make a will, and, and dragons in their dotage breathe their last. At cocoa time each evening, the lounge is full of creatures, all sitting in a circle telling tales, rambling on down memory lane in their dressing gowns and sneakers, Recalling far-off days in ancient Wales. There's a giant there called Emlyn. Have pity on his case. He shrunk from twelve foot six to five foot three. He tries to look defiant, but there's sadness in his face, though he boasts of his notorious family tree. His father held the record for unheroic deeds. And his mother could cast a spell and put a curse on. His sister spread corruption through King Arthur's gallant breed. And his brother, oh, his brother was a most unpleasant person. Emlyn feels he's let the side down, though he stands upon his chair and shouts across the room of his adventures. Well, it's hard to frighten people when you've nearly lost your hair and matrons kept you waiting for new dentures. There's half a dozen wizards there, all making solemn warnings that they once made to the king that they were serving. So many gloomy forecasts that everyone is yawning. Six wise old men, and five of them called Merle. She rises from her studio couch, attempting to look naughty, and dances on a less than sprightly foot. Born a thousand years ago, but insisting she's just forty. The faded queen of the Toad Teg holds court. Moonshine Mega leaves tonight in search of a vanished land. She takes a bow. Good night, farewell. She swoons. She's packed her harp and her painted wings. She, she folds her magic wand and sprays her breath with scent to hide the booze. A message from the underworld has told her to return. She kisses everyone upon the cheek, but no one goes to see her off. They shrug, show no concern. Well, it's a third dramatic exit in a week. There's a smell of fire and brimstone and a flashing yellow light when Cadwallader the dragon lifts his sultry head. His profile is majestic. He's a disappointing sight. A Welsh dragon who's green instead of, green, instead of red from blanket in the corner. There's a small face peeping out. Poor Gwen the mermaid, always very shy. She keeps her body covered up. Since she heard the giant shout, ha ha, I could eat a plate or two of hot f mi fish pie. Marvy the witch looks in the glass, admiring her wrinkled face. She smiles and shows a row of broken teeth. Though her joints have grown much stiffer now and her broomstick flights lack pace. Her cold black heart beats strongly underneath. She's working on a recipe to stimulate the passion in the monster who once terrified all whales. But ingredients for her potion are strictly on the ration, so the beast sleeps on behind his western mail. 
Now the summer season's over, the promenade's an empty stage. High tides have swept the paper flags away, but the darkness and the radiance of a supernatural age are waiting in the corner of the day. From the corner, the dragon makes a, dra- makes a striking silhouette. The six wise men are paddling while the mermaid swims once more, and is dancing as the sun begins to set. The fairy queen, her petticoats above her knees, she girds, and gently takes the monster by the hand. The witch recites an evil spell, but stumbles on the words, while the giant frolics softly in the sand. For tips on how to start telling stories yourself, go to our website, thesuccessstoriesclub.wordpress.com. This podcast is brought to you by a small furry bear productions. They're at asfbproductions.com. It's presented by me, Sharon Richards, and produced by Claire Freeman. The music is by Chris Rogan. I really hope you'll join us again, where we can help you to find your story and tell it well. Lay me down gently, tell to me Stories that soothe me And set my dreams free